Hi everyone, it's uh, Anthony Hatcher from Me and My Wellness, and today we're doing a, a new segment. Uh, it's basically going to be Me and My Health Chats. Uh, so it's going to be talking to other professionals and to find out more about what they do and how they serve the community. For me, the reason why I'm doing this is to connect us closer together as health professionals and so that we understand better what each of us do and what our strengths are and who we best serve uh, so that we can then work together and enhance the outcomes of our clients. So today I've got uh, Nina Kingsford-Smith uh, from Healthy Happenings with Nina and it's a pleasure to have uh, Nina uh, with me today. I studied with Nina at Endeavour College. We studied a nutritional medicine degree together and yeah, we got to know each other. We did uh, assignments and all that and used to share notes and um, collaborate. And Nina's always been a great source of recipes for me because I'm not a great cook. <laughs> so I've often gone to Nina when I've got I've brought something I don't know what to do with it. Nina always helps me with um, coming up with innovative ways to make it taste nice and healthy. So um, yeah, so it's a pleasure to have Nina on. And Nina's uh, really uh, specialises a lot with uh, disordered eating, uh, which is commonly known as eating disorders, but I'm going to ask Nina why she uh, refers to it as um, disordered eating. Uh, and uh, yeah, without much further ado, I'd just love to um, bring to you and present to the world uh, Nina Kingsford-Smith from uh, Healthy Happenings with Nina. How are you, Nina? Hello. Um, how are you? I'm fantastic. And uh, yeah, yeah, really excited to be learning more about your field of expertise. And uh, yeah. let me start with, I, I, I know you've had a personal experience uh, with yeah. disordered eating. And for yeah. me, yeah, I think that would be important for the viewers to understand that you've had this personal journey. And yeah, uh, yeah so please share that. That'd be fantastic. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, as you said, I specialise in disordered eating um, and the reason I am so passionate about it is because I have had first-hand experience with it myself um, for many many years I would do things like um, you know counting my calories in a calorie counting app as well as keeping a food diary I weighed myself daily I would track how many steps I did and how much exercise I did yeah. I would avoid social situations because I would, you know, for fear that there wouldn't be anything quote-unquote healthy to eat. Um, just all sorts of fixations around food and my body. And I think, I don't, I didn't realise it at the time, but looking back on it now, I can see that my initial decision to actually study nutrition was based in the belief that the more I knew about food, the more I could sort of manipulate it and motivate myself to eat a certain way and for my body to look a certain way um, and it was just gradually throughout the degree learning more about food learning more about how amazing our bodies are and how beautiful and nourishing food is just this newfound respect for both food and for our bodies and just how incredible they are um, and you know having some amazing mentors on the way just naturally sort of shifting my perspectives around things and through a lot of hard work as well. Like it was a very conscious effort just to naturally sort of heal those relationships, you know, with food and with my body. Um, and yeah, it got me to a place where it's became my real passion to help other people with that. Um, 
sadly, disordered eating and eating disorders aren't going anywhere. If anything, it's just getting worse. Um, more and more people are affected by it. Um, not just, you know, there's a typical demographic of young females, but women of all ages, men of all ages, kids younger and younger, um, you know, people into their 80s and 90s suffering these sorts of things. And I just think it's a really important sort of area to work on. So, and yeah. Do you have an understanding of why it's getting worse? I think it's very multifaceted. The main reason I would attribute to it getting worse is definitely society, like socio-cultural okay. um, media being massive, especially social media. Um, just const we're constantly subjected to, you know, what's called the thin ideal. So, you know, or even these days, it's more of like a strong ideal. So like strong, fit looking people mm -hmm. um, and this, I, you know, this unrealistic ideal of wanting to attain that when we're not genetically made to all look the same. Like there's no way that some people can, you know, look a certain way. Um, and such a fixation as well on how we look uh, when there's so much more to life than how you look. Yeah. Um, and then food being, I suppose, a way to get to that end point. You know, you, you manipulate food in a certain way to try and get to that end goal of looking a certain way. Um, but yes, also there's much more increasing awareness these days about health and wellness, which is fantastic on one side, but on the other end, it opens up to a lot more anxieties around food and also very clever marketing from companies taking advantage of that, taking advantage of our genuine desire to get healthy or taking advantage of our insecurities and whether that be marketing certain foods in certain ways, you know, there's gluten-free, sugar-free, paleo, keto, like you could go on and on, um, you know, in the supermarket ads on magazines, you know, bus stop ads, segments on morning TV, um, things on Facebook and Instagram. It's just everywhere and you can't really escape it. So, and yeah. Is there an element of people being unaware that they're actually experiencing and going through this? Certainly, yeah. yeah. Yep. Um, I mean, personally, from my experience, I never realised it at the time. I was so unaware of, like, I knew what I was doing, as you know, I knew that I was, for example, counting calories, but I was yeah. so unaware that it was so problematic and yeah. the impact that it was having on my life yeah. um, and how much it was restricting me. It was only once I sort of naturally sort of transitioned away from it that I could look back and see just how much it sort of had taken over my life. Um, especially because a lot of the habits and the thoughts and things like that around disordered eating that are problematic are so often glorified in our society. Yeah. So weight loss for one, um, you know, somebody who has lost weight could have a very serious eating disorder or disordered eating yet friends and family with, all good intentions might say something like, oh my God, you look amazing. You've lost weight. Um, or whether it's exercising and exercise can be a real big part of eating disorders, mm -hmm. um, using it as a compensatory sort of behavior okay. and it can become very obsessive as well. And, you know, the harder you train, the more it's sort of seen as a good thing in our society a lot of the time. So for that reason, a lot of it can 
sort of be misinterpreted as not being an issue, but actually even being a good thing. Yeah. 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 The societal influences seem to be huge in in terms of what you're saying. Um, Yeah. To fit in to society, fit in with peer groups. Uh, What age group is most vulnerable uh, to this? Um, that's a really good question. There are, it will often depend on the eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so there are different types of eating disorders. And if it is a specific eating disorder we're talking about, like I believe it's binge eating disorder um, is more of an onset later in life. Okay. Whereas, so typically it will be, I think, think I could be wrong here so don't quote me on it but bulimia will onset first Mm -hmm. um that may then transition into anorexia Mm -hmm. it might be the other way around I'm sorry I I would need to double check that and then transitioning into um binge eating disorder they're sort of the three main eating disorders um and in terms can you um, just help the viewers understand, I guess, the definition of those eating disorders? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I will also um, distinguish between eating disorder and disordered eating. They are quite different things. So someone with an eating disorder, may they will definitely have disordered eating mm-hmm. habits and behaviours, but someone who shows disordered eating habits and behaviours won't necessarily have an eating disorder. Okay. It sort of all comes down to the frequency and the severity of it. Right. And therefore, if it fits into a certain diagnostic criteria, mm-hmm. what, which is called DSM-5, yep. and that set of criteria is used to diagnose eating disorders. Okay. Um, and that's a very specific set of criteria depending on what the eating disorder is. Right. Um, but someone may still have disordered eating but maybe not... So they would have very similar habits and mm-hmm. thoughts around food and eating, yep. but it's not to the same severity or frequency okay. as someone with eating disorder might have. Okay. Um, yeah, so eating disorders, they are classed as a group of mental illnesses. Mm-hmm. It's not actually classed as physical illness, but a mental illness, and it, but it will have serious mental and physical consequences. Right. The three main ones is anorexia nervosa, mm-hmm. um, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder. Yep. And then there is the rest are classed as what's the acronym OSFED, so otherwise specified feeding and eating disorders. And that could include anything from um, there's orthorexia nervosa, which is a big growing one now, which is that sort of obsession around clean eating and only eating healthy foods. Um, there's night feeding syndrome, which affects the sleep wakes, wake cycle. And it's literally waking throughout the night and eating. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, you know, there's, there's a lot, there's one that's called diabulimia, which relates to people with diabetes and the way that they use insulin to regulate their weight. Okay. Um, PICA, um, okay. one called rumination disorder, lots and lots of different right. ones under that. Yeah. Yeah. And so with deep, uh, disordered eating it's about picking up those symptoms early or the i, I guess the behaviors early yeah, exactly. uh, that supporting the person before it actually becomes an eating disorder which is a lot harder to treat is it is have i got a that's, 
exactly and 100% spot on. So I really like to work with clients when they're still in the disordered eating stage for the exact reason that you said to catch it before it sort of develops into a fully grown eating disorder per se. Right. Um, really, really important to, to, you know, to start to work on it as soon as possible. And are those things you want to capture that, you know, in terms of disordered, disordered eating behaviours, is it like the fixation on calories, like calorie counting? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, if you like, I can go through sort of like a list of what yeah. it might be. So it's a general fixation on eating food body image is sort of where it centres from and how that manifests might be yeah so fixation on counting calories or macros even um certain language around food so seeing food which a lot of us do anyway society sort of does but you know as good or bad um or whether you're good or bad for eating a certain food um cutting out food groups or certain foods is a massive one um and that's where a lot of food rules and rituals can come in. So, you know, um, not eating gluten, not eating carbs after a certain time at night time, only eating one serve of, you know, bread a day, um, all that sort of stuff. Um, avoiding certain, so well, avoiding any sorts of situations, so whether that's like social situations around food because of not wanting to eat in front of others or, fearing that there's not going to be food that you can eat that's, you know, healthy there. Um, using food to deal with emotions on a regular basis. Um, you know, emotional eating is an often like a, like I guess you could say a natural coping mechanism, but doing that regularly and using it sort of as an escape from your emotions yeah. um, can be really big. Um, restricting yourself around food and that will often then just inevitably lead to overeating mm -hmm. with food later on um, yeah. engaging in compensatory sort of behavior regularly so you know obsessively exercising to counteract the amount of calories you've eaten yeah, um, yeah all sorts of things okay and how do you work with clients that come to you and they're you know they're exhibiting some of these behaviors what, what would be yeah. Yeah, the approach in terms of how you'd... Yeah, yeah that's a good question. Um, so I take a what's called a non-diet approach mm -hmm. and that really, that works on a lot of empowerment for the client. So empowering them to be able to make their own decisions around food and develop... Um, a more positive will definitely develop a more positive relationship with food and with their bodies. So instead of focusing on external cues around food, mm -hmm. focusing on internal cues instead, and you become the own expert of your body and your health. Like our bodies are these incredibly smart things and we're all so different. Like once we can listen into our body's internal cues and um, which I can go into in a second examples of that, we can really start to feel a lot more empowered. And that's where I feel like the magic really happens with healing your relationship with food, because instead of relying on something, an external cue that is what the diet 
sort of approach focuses on. So that would be, you know, eat three square meals a day, eating according to the clock. So, you know, oh, it's lunchtime. I'm not really hungry, but it's lunch. So I should eat. Um, oh, I'm eating, you know, X amount of calories in a day. So I'll count them and, you know, oh, I'm hungry, but I've reached my limit. So I'm not going to eat anymore. Those sorts of things. It's very restrictive. It's um, an all or nothing sort of mentality. The non-diet approach focuses a lot more around mindful and intuitive eating so that they are different but similar things. They sort of complement one another. Yeah. And that helps you focus on internal cues. So that would be your hunger and fullness levels. Mm -hmm. It's figuring out what hunger is for you. So, you know, for a lot of people that would feel like fullness in your belly. Um, sorry, that would be fullness. Hunger would feel like an emptiness in your belly. It might be a gurgling stomach, might be a bit of lightheadedness. Okay. Um, you might even experience a little bit of anxiety when you get really hungry. It's different yeah. for everybody. So it's tuning into that. It's being able to recognize the difference between physical hunger. So those sorts of signs we just talked about and emotional hunger. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's ways to, I work with clients to figure out the difference between those. Um, so all sorts of things around, around that sort of aspect of it. Um, and just really helping them shift their relationship with their bodies as well. So whether that's doing more a more lifestyle sort of approach, like reframing exercises, joyful movement, and just yeah. finding ways that they actually really enjoy to move. Um, exercises like a celebration of what their bodies can do, not yeah. what they should look like. Yes. Um, all of those sorts of things, a lot of education as well mm -hmm. um, around food itself and developing skills, so cooking skills and those sorts of things. And I believe it's really, really important to also work in conjunction as part of a wider healthcare team. So because eating disorders and disordered eating is so complex and multifaceted, really, really important to work alongside a good doctor and a mental health care worker as well. So usually a therapist or a counsellor um, to work on the, the issues underlying. Um, then I suppose if there's any um, coexisting, mental, uh, sorry, coexisting health conditions as well. So gut issues are a big one. Um, anxiety and depression mm -hmm. are big ones. Um, nutritional deficiencies. So working with those things as well, addressing those factors. Okay. Yeah. And, and you mentioned earlier just about all these satiety, society impacts. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, um, I'm just thinking in terms of like there'll be viewers that, you know, or don't associate, you know, with, you know, eating disorders or disordered eating. Uh, but what can, I guess, the average person do uh, to help change this perception that, you know, we should be fixated in the how we look and, you know, so I guess what can the average person change in their behaviour or in terms of how they talk, you know, communicate? You mentioned communication was one of these things yeah. that in terms of, you know, when we yeah. comment on how someone looks and, oh, you've lost yeah. some weight and, you know, then yeah. you're and you're complimenting them that yes you should lose you know lose more weight and I'll, I'll give you more compliments um so 
Yeah, so have you got some tips around just how, how we as citizens of society can go out there and do good? Yeah, yeah. Um, exactly the examples you gave are perfect places to start. So really comes back to checking yourself, like really become aware of the language you use around food and the judgments you make around people's bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, so the language you use around food, that's a, a massive one. You know, food is food. It's not, doesn't have, it's not a moral dilemma. It's not good or bad. You're not good or bad for eating it. So removing those sorts of, that sort of language around food or like guilty pleasure, like is something, that one really gets me. How can something be pleasurable that makes you feel guilty? It's just ridiculous. Or yeah, guilt-free treats. Um cheat days and cheat meals like who are you cheating like what are you cheating um clean eating infers that other food is dirty you know that sort of language is just it's thanks to clever marketing and stuff like that but it comes down to us as individuals to stop that continuing on in our everyday vernacular and to stop perpetuating that sort of language and the connotations that go along with it so really start to become aware of the language you use and stop using those sorts of, that sort of language around it. Yeah. Um, as well as the way you talk about your own body and other people's bodies, um, judgments that you make around people and their health and their lifestyle based purely on how they look. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it is not a reflection. There are so many things that go into the size that someone is and their size is not a reflection of their health. Um, you know, health can exist at every size. Um, so Hayes, health at every size is another approach that I take. Um, just, we can talk about that another day. <laughs> it's another big one. Um, and then also look at where your media exposure so go on to your facebook instagram instagram's a big one look at who you follow like what sort of ideals are they spreading what sort of pictures are they posting unfollow anybody who makes you feel less than good um follow inspirational and positive sort sort of accounts that do make you feel good and that are body inclusive and that a non-diet if you like i can send you a list if you want to if you'd like to post a list uh, absolutely yeah please please do nina because i I think we as citizens can do a whole lot more to stop this propagation as you mentioned and you know i'd love to be that one of those people because you know in the past i must say you know i have referred to food as being good or bad and uh we'll do it you know it's until i'm aware of it it's yeah and and I, yes, and, and, I, and I think it's important for us nutritionists to get the language right uh, so that we're not propagating that incorrect message. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, no, so please, please do share that. Uh, I'm just yeah. thinking also for those ones that know they have a loved one, how they could best support someone that they know with either disordered eating or eating disordered. And if you've yeah. got any advice as to... How, like if you if you're recognizing that behavior you mentioned earlier around disordered eating how's a good way to intercept and sort of suggest that it would be good for them to get some 
help early. Like I'm just trying to think how do we, because, you know, working in the mental health space, it can sometimes be challenging to, I guess, influence them to make the right decision for them uh, and you're looking in their best interests and it's, yeah. So I'm just wondering if you've got some tips in this area as to how um, viewers could potentially help someone that they recognise that are getting a bit obsessive, either that um, orthorexia sort of obsession around health or whether they're excessively fixated on calorie counting or the way they look and, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, really good question. Um, what I'll say first as well, we didn't, I talked a lot about sort of the behavioural signs around, you know, indicating that someone might be struggling with yeah. issues around food, but there are other signs um, that might help a loved one recognise that something might be going on. Yeah. Um, so in terms of physical complaints, I think I mentioned before, gut issues are a big complaint. So whether that's bloating um, or constipation, um, vomiting, um, reflux, there's some key ones. Um, signs of dehydration, so dry skin, hair and nails, and that can also be a sign of malnutrition. Okay. Um, heart palpitations or dizziness. Okay. Um, even fainting on a regular basis. Um, there is for when it things start to become a little bit more serious. So, for example, if someone is vomiting regularly, um, discoloration of their teeth, mm -hmm. and even what's called uh, I think it's Russell's signs, and it's sort of calluses on your nails from um, purging from vom self-induced vomiting. Mm -hmm. um, Lanugo, which is an excess growth of hair, sort of like, you know, when babies have that sort of excess layer yeah. of thin hair. Yeah. And that's when someone loses so much weight to the point where their body is sort of growing an extra layer of hair to try and protect them mm -hmm. um, in terms of thermoregulation, in terms of keeping their body right. a certain temperature. Okay. Um, Menstrual irregularities are another big one, primarily amenorrhea, or that's when you lose your period, you stop getting your period, um, feeling cold all the time. Um, and then um, psychologically as well, a lot of isolation, um, obsessive compulsive sort of behaviours, anxiety, depression, um, generally being withdrawn from emotions um, or also... Um, over dependency on other people so yeah i just want to cover a few more of those ones because i know that those can also help loved ones sort of pick up maybe if there are issues absolutely and you also um, mentioned before was that uh social anxiety so the thinking twice or or sort of saying yes you'll go to something but not turning up or you know like so that because you're, you're fearful as to what food's going to be there and whether i'll be judged yeah. for eating it or whether there'll be something i can eat and and so therefore yeah, yeah. you you pull back from all these social engagements, which is really important from that mental health perspective. So I think exactly. I really liked how you've highlighted a number of key areas that I would have never thought of, such as those gut issues that you mentioned, uh, certain yeah. signs to look out for, um, that if you know someone is doing actively, you know, on a regular basis, these sort of, you know, the purging and uh, yeah. behaviour. So uh, I think that's really comprehensive and, you know, it's been very insightful for me to have a you know, much better understanding as to uh, how complicated and multifaceted uh, this yeah. is.
Yeah, and, it really is. Yeah, uh, and how much society has to answer for around this, uh, this whole yeah. around image. Because, you know, primarily you are saying that it's very driven by wanting to look a particular way and people yeah. then taking that to say, well, how, how can I do that? Well, then, you know, I've got to address my eating, I need to address my exercise and I just get obsessive over one or the other or both. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. And to, to, to a point that, you know, really becomes a severe mental, you know, concern. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I mean, there are definitely other, other than society, there are definitely other factors that contribute to it. And it can often be much more than or not even involved with things like body image. Um, so genetics is a really, really... Okay can be a big factor as well um especially there has been more education sorry more research around genetics in regards to anorexia right there was actually a really big study done in i think it was last year 2019 and it was around 66,000 participants yeah. and i think around sorry six I've got it here, 16,000 cases of anorexia, people with diagnosed anorexia nervosa and 55,000 controls. And they studied their genes and they actually found eight genetic, what's called genetic loci. Okay. Um, that actually relate back to, that are linked with um, anorexia. Okay. So for example, I think one was to do with the role that serotonin plays. Right. Which is a neurotransmitter. Um, another one other ones had to do with personality traits like perfectionism and obsessionality which i found really really interesting um and they there was one study that said um female relatives of people with anorexia are about 11 times more likely to develop it than somebody who doesn't have a female relative with anorexia for people with bulimia i believe it's about four times more likely to develop it um, and just eating disorders in general, if you do have a first degree relative, so that's like a, a parent or a sibling who has um, an eating disorder, you are more at risk of developing it. Okay. Um, even for example, one of the more, one of the less common eating disorders, which I mentioned at the start called night eating syndrome, that there's a gene called PR1, I think is the gene and that impacts your circadian rhythm so your sleep wake cycle and that's been shown to have a link with that specific eating disorder okay. um which is really really interesting um and another really big factor that is a very common thread throughout a lot of eating disorders is trauma um so whether that's childhood trauma there is something called aces which is adverse childhood experiences mm -hmm. and they will be certain things like um, neglect, abuse, parental separation, bullying, isolation as a child, which many people experience. But um, so, for example, about 83% of people with binge eating disorder report that they experience um, maltreatment during childhood. Mm. About 24% of people with anorexia nervosa report childhood sexual abuse. Mm. Um, so there is a very big link as well with trauma and eating disorders, and which is would, really interesting. 
do you think some of the rationale or reasoning, I know it's a bit of a long shot, but it, would it be because if they've, you know, suffered that sort of abuse, they, they, I guess it's a way in which they can control their actions. Uh, it's yeah. a way of which you can certainly get attention. So if it's, you know, if, if it's that attention you're seeking, you can certainly get it through controlling, you know, your food and lack of eating and refusing to eat. And, um, and the other one I was thinking of potential that could be a consequence of, you know, being mistreated is the fact that uh, you are sabotaging yourself. Uh, so you think you're the problem and hence you're punishing yourself. I'm, I'm just, you know, I guess some long shots as to why that may yeah. occur. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is where it crosses over a little bit more into like what a psychologist would be addressing with somebody, yeah. um, which I try to be very careful not to, you know, yeah. I'm very careful not to, cross that line yes. I suppose when I'm talking to when I'm you know working with clients with this sort of thing but yeah definitely all the things that you have said I think um, a lot of it also with you know reading about it and hearing people who have you know first-hand experience those things talking about it um, coming down to other factors like control um, using food so if it's more, say, for example, binge eating disorder, which is that overeating, um, using food to protect themselves right. in a way, protect themselves from um, certain emotions and things like that that they may not be dealing with yeah. um, that have been a result of this trauma that they've experienced. Um, and also a lot of the trauma actually relates to epigenetics so the switching on and off of certain genes okay. um, there's been some really interesting research around intergenerational trauma or historical mm -hmm. trauma so that's like a you know collective trauma experienced across generations within a certain um, group in society so that might be for example the holocaust or um you know, African-Americans during um, mm. history in America and how intergenerational trauma can actually be a big factor in eating disorders as well and how that switches on and off certain epigenetics that do, you know, come back to like coping mechanisms and coping skills and things like that, which is really interesting as well. I was also thinking, Nina, when you mentioned epigenetics, is the influence on parents, on their children, because we spoke about earlier mm -hmm. how the language, you know, the, if we use inappropriate language, it can certainly misguide or mislead um, people. And I'm just thinking also with children, not only are they listening to the language of their parents, so the parents might be saying, don't eat that, that's bad for you, or, you know, eat this, it's good for you, and, you know, this, and this will make you fat. Um, yeah. And the other thing is that children will imitate their parents' behaviour because uh, they're role models. And I'm thinking if if the mother or father is saying, I can't eat that, it will make me fat, uh, and obsessing over that sort of, um, I guess, approach to the way in which they're eating, the children copies the parents. So I'm thinking there's a lot around, you know, the parents can do in order to help. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like... By no means do I want to, you know, shame parents or tell anybody that they're not doing a good job. Or it's nothing yeah. to do with that. But the 
impact that parents can have on their children, especially from such a young age, you know, um, using food as reward, you know, if you're, if you do this, like go tidy room and then you get a lolly or, you know, whatever it is, or you have to eat everything on your place plate. So it's forcing them to ignore like kids are the perfect example of intuitive eating, you know, like one day a kid will just go off to school with a glass of milk. That's all they want. The next day they'll eat like three eggs and three slices of toast and they'll just keep eating or they'll just leave one mouthful of food left on their plate and they say, nah, I'm done. I'm full. They're naturally so intuitive. And then it's, it's as we grow up that we forget those, forget to listen to those natural intuitive internal cues. And we start listening more to that, those external cues. So if we can really encourage kids through the way that we, you know, through the way that parents act or through the way that grown-ups act around kids, encourage them to keep listening to those sort of intuitive messages, those internal cues, and to not burden them with all those, you know, societal messages like a mum saying, I'm too fat, I'm not eating carbs anymore. If you think about what message that gives to, like, their eight-year-old daughter, for example, who's starting to hear other messages like that from school. Um, you know, or that's just one example, but all sorts of examples, like it does have a really big impact. It's true. And uh, certainly a, a, as a father, I've, I've done some of those things that you're suggesting, you know, that we shouldn't do. And, and yes, and I'm thinking, you know, where's it come from? It's come from my parents, you know, like, so, yeah. you know, like with, uh, I guess our parents, parents, you know, experienced the uh, Great Depression and, you know, so when there was limits, you know, limited food available that obviously people really appreciated what they had in front of them and would, you know, encourage their children to eat all of it. And that's been passed on from generation to generation to generation to eat everything on your plate, you know, like it's, and it really takes away that intuitive nature of eating, like you said. And the other thing I'm thinking that parents probably get concerned about is when they're, seeing that their children are just picking or not hungry is that they're thinking that they're going to be malnourished and, and become sick and they're looking in the best interest of the kid. And, you know, they're so they, and then they say, well, you need to eat it. Yeah. You have to eat it. And uh, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult, it's really challenging, you know, from that parent's perspective. It is a very fine line and it is complex, you know, and, you know, I gave that example, but then, you know, there are other reasons that a child might not be eating. It might not just be because they're listening to their internal hunger cues. It could be there are actually a few eating disorders that are more to do uh, more common in children. Um, And that might be related to, you know, not because of they've already got um, issues around weight or, you know, negative body image or anything, but it could be other things that are going on perhaps more medically um, so there's one called rumination disorder and I'm not too familiar with the causes of it, but that's basically where usually very young kids will repeatedly chew, swallow, regurg- and regurgitate their food and then chew it again, swallow it, regurgitate it. And they just keep doing that. Or one that's called, um, it's avoidant restrictive feeding eating disorder, I think. And that's essentially like a really um, extreme form of fussy eating. Yeah. So someone might 
only be eating like five different foods. Mm-hmm. They might just actually only have five foods that they eat. Um, so, you know, there are lots of factors to consider, I suppose. It isn't just that simple. Like it's, I guess it's never simple. Um, but yeah, coming back to that example of, you know, a kid not eating enough, there, there is a lot of, well, what we would say, think is a kid not eating enough, there is a lot to consider. And probably the perfect example of where they should go and seek professional help if they're concerned, yes. uh, as opposed to letting it manifest over, you know, and get worse and worse and, you know, result in some sort of chronic condition. Exactly. Is, yeah, they seek help early on. And so it really um, leads me into, you know, asking you as to how viewers can connect with you if they you know, got someone that they would like to refer to you that, you know, could benefit from your service that you described earlier or um or just wanting to have a chat as to you know how you know how you could help them further with you know their health or someone loved one's health so yeah how do people get in touch with you nina um my website which is just my name nina kingsford smith or one word um dot com dot au yeah i'm also over on instagram um would probably be the main sort of social media platform i use which is Healthy Happenings with Nina. Yep. Um, and I'm also over on Facebook, and my, which is the same Healthy Happenings with Nina. And my contact details are on all of there. So feel free to shoot me an email or give me a call. Um, more than happy to, to have a chat with anyone. And I'll also mention um, a few really good resources as well. Two websites. One is the Butterfly Foundation. Yeah. which is an organisation that, you know, specialises with eating disorders. And another one is NEDC, which I think is the National Eating Disorder Collaboration. Okay. They have some really fantastic resources. Um, again, I can yes, send please. you the link. No, um, that would be fantastic. So the links yeah. to uh, how they can connect with you and then uh, furthermore the, um, the links to these other support things like the Butterfly Foundation. Yeah. And I'll pop in there, there's one about how to talk to a loved one if you think that they do have an eating disorder or they are struggling with disordered eating. Um, some really, really good pointers about how to approach that, um, how to start the conversation, what sort of things to say. So I'll pop that in there as well. And there's probably one more thing that I want to add, Nina, is, uh, yeah. if, you know, if, if someone doesn't have, you know, or anyone that they know with a potential eating disorder, um, or, the, or themselves are not going through it, then um, certainly Nina's a great contact for healthy eating that is absolutely delicious. So uh, all those <laughs> social media contacts such as her Instagram feed and Facebook feed are full of amazing recipes that I'm constantly baking and cooking myself. Not only <laughs> they look delicious, that they, they actually taste delicious and they're really healthy and it's a great way i think you know cooking is a great way to connect and embrace food and and enjoy it and so i think nina does an amazing job with just just creativity around use of ingredients and making it really tasty and healthy and nutritious so thoroughly recommend everyone to uh connect with nina and uh you'll get so much lovely food recipes it's the best so um and uh, also, a pleasure, Nina. And I really want to thank you for your time today because you've just given um, me amazing insight myself, really helpful from a parent point of view, from a practitioner point of view. 
And obviously for the viewers, it's been amazing in terms of, you know, how you've brought that um, view that it's, you know, multifaceted uh, and there's many aspects to it. It's, you know, it's quite complex. And, and you shared with the viewers as to how they could, first of all, identify it, be more aware of it. And then second as to, you know, some of the practical tips as to how they can approach the subject. So uh, I really, yeah, greatly thank you for your time and your expertise and uh, looking forward to us, you know, continuing, you know, working together and serving our clients yeah. so that, uh, yeah. and also spreading the word, Nina, you know, as to um, yeah. sharing more about what you do and uh, how as a society, <laughs> I'm going to practice this word, we can, <laughs> you can, we can do so much more and, you know, as parents, we can do so much more and as friends and family, we can do so much more. Well, thank you to you as well. Really enjoyed it. And like you said, any sort of opportunity I can have to help spread awareness around this sort of thing, I'm really passionate about. So I really, really appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Pleasure, Nina. We're definitely going to have you back on again and get more deeper into some of these areas that you mentioned that you just touched on and there, there's so much more to it. So I'd certainly, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll have you back on. And, uh, and viewers, if you've got any... Uh, questions or comments for Nina, feel free to, um, you can ask them via me or go direct to Nina. Uh, and certainly comment as to what you'd like to hear more about, what more, you know, further insight you'd like to uh, Nina to share. And we can certainly do that at a later date for you. So uh, thanks everyone for tuning in and thank you so much, Nina. It's been an absolute delight to be with you again. Thank you. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Podcast disclaimer. This podcast and any information, advice, opinions, or statements within it do not constitute medical, healthcare, or professional advice and are provided for general information purposes only. All care is taken in the preparation of the information in this podcast. Connected Wellness Proprietary Limited, operating under the brand Me and My Health Up, does not make any representations or give any warranties about its accuracy, reliability, completeness, or suitability for any particular purpose. This podcast and any information, advice, opinions, or statements within it are not to be used as a substitute for professional, medical, psychological, psychiatric, or any other mental health care or health care in general. Me and My Health Up recommends you seek the advice of a doctor or qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Inform your doctor of any changes that you made to your lifestyle and discuss these with your doctor. Do not disregard medical advice or delay visiting a medical professional because of something you hear in this podcast. This podcast has been carefully prepared on the basis of current information. Changes in circumstances after publication may affect the accuracy of this information. To the maximum extent permitted by the law, Me and My Health Up disclaims any such representations or warranties to the completeness, accuracy, merchantability, or fitness for purpose of this podcast and will not be liable for any expenses, losses, damages, incurred indirect or consequential damages or costs that may be incurred as a result of the information being inaccurate or incomplete in any way and for any reason. No part of this podcast can be reproduced, redistributed, published, copied, or duplicated in a form without prior permission of me and my health up.